Hello, my name is Nick Bright, scholar of East Asian religions. And I'm Proven Paradox, a guy with a lot of questions. And you're listening to Bright on Buddhism, a podcast where we discuss East Asian Buddhism, answering listener-submitted questions from listeners just like you, and introducing concepts of Buddhism that you may or may not be familiar with in a casual, conversational setting. Enjoy. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Bright on Buddhism. This week, we will be reading and discussing chapters 1 and 2 of the Mahaparinibbana Sutta, which is part of the Diga Nikaya of the Pali Canon. The title translates roughly to Discourse on the Final Nirvana, and it documents the final days of Shakyamuni, the historical Buddha. The sutta is divided into six parts, and in it you will see the very beginnings of death ritual doctrines in Buddhism. Furthermore, you will see how the Buddha solved the problem that had been weighing heavily on the minds of his disciples as he grew closer to death. What ought they do when he is gone from the world? This translation is by Sister Vajira and Francis Story. We hope you enjoy. Thus have I heard. Once the Blessed One dwelt in Rajagriha, on a hill called Vulture's Peak. At that time, the king of Magadha, Ajatasatru, son of Vaidehi queen, desired to wage war against the Vajis. He spoke in this fashion. These Vajis, powerful and glorious as they are, I shall annihilate them, I shall make them perish, I shall utterly destroy them. And Ajatasatru, the king of Magadha, addressed his chief minister, the Brahmin Vasakara, saying, Come, Brahmin, go to the Blessed One, pay homage in my name at his feet, and wish him good health, strength, ease, vigor, and comfort, and speak thus, O Lord Ajatasatru, king of Magadha, desires to wage war against the Vajis. He has spoken in this fashion. These Vajis, powerful and glorious as they are, I shall annihilate them, I shall make them perish, I shall utterly destroy them. And whatever the Blessed One should answer you, keep it well in mind, and inform me, the Tathagatas do not speak falsely. Very well, sire, said the Brahmin Vasakara, in assent to Ajatasatru, king of Magadha. He ordered a large number of magnificent carriages to be made ready, mounted one himself, and accompanied by the rest, drove out to Rajagiha, towards Vulture Peak. He went by carriage as far as the carriage could go, then dismounting, he approached the Blessed One on foot. After exchanging courteous greetings with the Blessed One, together with many pleasant words, he sat down at one side and addressed the Blessed One thus, Venerable Gotama, Ajatasatru, the king of Magadha, pays homage at the feet of Venerable Gotama, and wishes him good health, strength, ease, vigor, and comfort. He desires to wage war against the Vajis, and he has spoken in this fashion. These Vajis, powerful and glorious as they are, I shall annihilate them, I shall make them perish, I shall utterly destroy them. At that time, the Venerable Ananda was standing behind the Blessed One, fanning him, and the Blessed One addressed the Venerable Ananda thus, What have you heard, Ananda? Do the Vajis have frequent gatherings, and are their meetings well attended? Ananda replied, I have heard, Lord, that this is so. The Blessed One replied, So long, Ananda, as this is the case, the growth of the Vajis is to be expected, not their decline. What have you heard, Ananda? Do the Vajis assemble and disperse peacefully and attend to their affairs in concord? Ananda replied, I have heard, Lord, that they do. The Blessed One replied, So long, Ananda, as this is the case, the growth of the Vajis is to be expected, not their decline. What have you heard, Ananda? Do the Vajis neither enact new decrees nor abolish existing ones, but proceed in accordance with their ancient constitutions? Ananda replied, I have heard, Lord, that they do. 
The Buddha replied, So long, Ananda, as this is the case, the growth of the Vajis is to be expected, not their decline. What have you heard, Ananda? Do the Vajis show respect, honor, esteem, and veneration toward their elders, and think it worthwhile to listen to them? Ananda replied, I have heard, Lord, that they do. The Blessed One replied, So long, Ananda, as this is the case, the growth of the Vajis is to be expected, not their decline. What have you heard, Ananda? Do the Vajis refrain from abducting women and maidens of good families and from detaining them? Ananda replied, I have heard, Lord, that they refrain from doing so. The Blessed One replied, So long, Ananda, as this is the case, the growth of the Vajis is to be expected, not their decline. What have you heard, Ananda? Do the Vajis show respect, honor, esteem, and veneration towards their shrines, both those within the city and those outside it, and do not deprive them of the due offerings as given and made to them formerly? Ananda replied, I have heard, Lord, that they do venerate their shrines, and that they do not deprive them of their offerings. The Blessed One replied, So long, Ananda, as this is the case, the growth of the Vajis is to be expected, not their decline. What have you heard, Ananda? Do the Vajis duly protect and guard the Arhats, so that those who have not come to the realm yet might do so, and those who have already come might live here in peace? Ananda replied, I have heard, Lord, that they do. The Blessed One replied, So long, Ananda, as this is the case, the growth of the Vajis is to be expected, not their decline. And the Blessed One addressed the Brahmin Vasakara in these words, Once, Brahmin, I dwelt at Vasali, at the Sarandata shrine, and there it was that I taught the Vajis these seven conditions leading to a nation's welfare. So long, Brahman, as these endure among the Vajis, and the Vajis are known for it, their growth is to be expected, not their decline. Thereupon, the Brahman Vasakara spoke thus to the Blessed One. If the Vajis, Venerable Gautama, were endowed with only one or another of these conditions leading to welfare, their growth would have to be expected, not their decline. What then of all the seven? No harm indeed can be done to the Vajis in battle by Magadha's king, Ajatasatru, except through treachery or discord. Well then, Venerable Gotama, we will take our leave, for we have much to perform, much work to do. The Blessed One replied, Do as now seems fit to you, Brahman. And the Brahman Vasakara, the chief minister of Magadha, approving of the Blessed One's words and delighted by them, rose from his seat and departed. Then, soon after Vasakara's departure, the Blessed One addressed the Venerable Ananda thus, Go now, Ananda, and assemble in the hall of audience as many bhikkhus as live around Rajagriha. Ananda replied, Very well, Lord. And the Venerable Ananda did as he was requested, and informed the Blessed One, The community of bhikkhus is assembled, Lord. Now let the Blessed One do as he wishes. Thereupon the Blessed One rose from his seat, went up to the hall of audience, took his appointed seat there, and addressed the bhikkhus thus, Seven conditions leading to welfare I shall set forth, bhikkhus. Listen and pay heed to what I shall say. The bhikkhus replied, So be it, Lord. The Blessed One said, The growth of the bhikkhus is to be expected, not their decline, bhikkhus, so long as they assemble frequently and in large numbers, meet and disperse peacefully, and attend to the affairs of the Sangha in concord, so long as they appoint no new rules and do not abolish the existing ones, but proceed in accordance with the code of training laid down so long as they show respect, honor, esteem, and veneration towards the elder bhikkhus, those of long standing, long gone forth, the fathers and leaders of the Sangha, and think it worthwhile to listen to them, so long as they do not come under the power of the craving that leads to fresh becoming, so long as they cherish the forest depths for their dwellings, so long as they establish themselves in mindfulness, 
so that virtuous brethren of the order who have not come yet might do so, and those who already come might live in peace. So long, bhikkhus, as these seven conditions leading to welfare endure among the bhikkhus, and the bhikkhus are known for it, their growth is to be expected, not their decline. Seven further conditions leading to welfare I shall set forth, bhikkhus. Listen and pay heed to what I shall say. The bhikkhus replied, So be it, Lord. The Blessed One said, The growth of the bhikkhus is to be expected, not their decline, bhikkhus, so long as they do not delight in, are not pleased with, and are not fond of activities, talk, sleep, and company, so long as they do not harbor, do not come under the spell of evil desires, have no bad friends, associates, or companions, and so long as they do not stop halfway on account of some trifling achievement. So long, bhikkhus, as these seven conditions leading to welfare endure among the bhikkhus and the bhikkhus are known for it, their growth is to be expected, not their decline. Seven further conditions leading to welfare I shall set forth, bhikkhus. Listen and pay heed to what I shall say. The bhikkhus replied, So be it, Lord. The Blessed One said, The growth of the bhikkhus is to be expected, not their decline, bhikkhus, so long as they shall have faith, so long as they have moral shame and fear of misconduct, are proficient in learning, resolute, mindful, and wise. So long, bhikkhus, as these seven conditions leading to welfare endure among the bhikkhus, and the bhikkhus are known for it, their growth is to be expected, not their decline. Seven further conditions leading to welfare I shall set forth, bhikkhus. Listen and pay heed to what I shall say. The bhikkhus replied, So be it, Lord. The Blessed One said, The growth of the bhikkhus is to be expected, not their decline, bhikkhus, so long as they cultivate the seven factors of enlightenment, that is, mindfulness, investigation into phenomena, energy, bliss, tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. So long, bhikkhus, as these seven conditions leading to welfare endure among the bhikkhus, and the bhikkhus are known for it, their growth is to be expected, not their decline. Seven further conditions leading to welfare I shall set forth, bhikkhus. Listen and pay heed to what I shall say. The bhikkhus replied, So be it, Lord. The Blessed One said, The growth of the bhikkhus is to be expected, not their decline. Bhikkhus, so long as they cultivate the perception of impermanence, of egolessness, of the body's impurity, of the body's wretchedness, of relinquishment, of dispassion, and of cessation. So long, bhikkhus, as these seven conditions leading to welfare endure among the bhikkhus, and the bhikkhus are known for it, their growth is to be expected, not their decline. Six further conditions leading to welfare I shall set forth, bhikkhus. Listen and pay heed to what I shall say. The bhikkhus replied, So be it, Lord. The Blessed One said, The growth of the bhikkhus is to be expected, not their decline, bhikkhus, so long as they attend on each other with loving-kindness in deed, word, and thought, both openly and in private, so long as in respect of what they receive as due offerings, even the contents of their alms bowls, they do not make use of them without sharing them with virtuous members of the community, so long as, in company with their brethren, they train themselves openly and in private in the rules of conduct, which are complete and perfect, spotless and pure, liberating, praised by the wise, uninfluenced by mundane concerns, and favorable to concentration of mind, and in company with their brethren, preserve, openly and in private, the insight that is noble and liberating, and leads one who acts upon it to the utter destruction of suffering. So long, bhikkhus, as these six conditions leading to welfare endure among the bhikkhus, and the bhikkhus are known for it, their growth is to be expected, not their decline. And the Blessed One, living at Rajagriha, at the hill called Vulture's Peak, often gave counsel to the bhikkhus thus, Such and such is virtue, such and such is concentration, and such and such is wisdom. Great becomes the fruit, 
Great is the gain of concentration when it is fully developed by virtuous conduct. Great becomes the fruit. Great is the gain of wisdom when it is fully developed by concentration. Utterly freed from the taints of lust, becoming, and ignorance is the mind that is fully developed by wisdom. When the Blessed One had stayed at Rajagriha as long as he pleased, he addressed the Venerable Ananda thus, Come, Ananda, let us go to Ambalatika. Ananda said, So be it, Lord. And the Blessed One took up his abode at Ambalatika, together with a large community of bhikkhus. At Ambalatika, the Blessed One came to stay in the king's rest house, and there too the Blessed One often gave counsel to the bhikkhus thus, Such and such is virtue, such and such is concentration, and such and such is wisdom. Great becomes the fruit, great is the gain of concentration, when it is fully developed by virtuous conduct. Great becomes the fruit, great is the gain of wisdom, when it is fully developed by concentration. Utterly freed from the taints of lust, becoming and ignorance is the mind that is fully developed in wisdom. When the Blessed One had stayed at Ambalatika as long as he pleased, he addressed the Venerable Ananda thus, Come Ananda, let us go to Nalanda. Ananda said, So be it, Lord. And the Blessed One took up his abode at Nalanda together with a large community of bhikkhus, and came to stay in the mango grove of Pavarika. Then the Venerable Shariputra went to the Blessed One, respectfully greeted him, and sat down at one side, and thus spoke to him, This faith, Lord, I have in the Blessed One, that there has not been, there will not be, nor is there now another recluse or Brahmin more exalted in enlightenment than the Blessed One. The Blessed One replied, Lofty indeed is this speech of yours, Shariputra, and lordly, a bold utterance, a veritable sounding of the lion's roar. But how is this, Sariputra? Those arhats, fully enlightened ones of the past, do you have direct personal knowledge of all those blessed ones, as to their virtue, their meditation, their wisdom, their abiding, and their emancipation? Shariputra replied, Not so, Lord. The blessed one said, Then how is this, Shariputra? Those arhats, fully enlightened ones of the future, do you have direct personal knowledge of all of those blessed ones, as to their virtue, their meditation, their wisdom, their abiding, and their emancipation? Shariputra said, Not so, Lord. The Blessed One said, Then how is this, Shariputra? Of me, who am at present the Arhat, the fully enlightened one, do you have direct personal knowledge as to my virtue, my meditation, my wisdom, my abiding, and my emancipation? Shariputra said, Not so, Lord. The Blessed One said, Then it is clear, Shariputra, that you have no such direct personal knowledge of the Arhats, the fully enlightened ones of the past, the future, and the present. How then dare you set forth a speech so lofty and lordly, an utterance so bold, a veritable sounding of the lion's roar, saying, This faith, Lord, I have in the Blessed One, that there has not been, there will not be, nor is there now another recluse or Brahmin more exalted in enlightenment than the Blessed One. Shariputra replied, No such direct personal knowledge indeed is mine, Lord, of the Arhats, the fully enlightened ones of the past, the future, and the present. Yet I have come to know the lawfulness of the Dharma. Suppose, Lord, a king's frontier fortress was strongly fortified, with strong ramparts and turrets, and it had a single gate, and there was a gatekeeper, intelligent, experienced, and prudent, who would keep out the stranger but allow the friend to enter. As he patrols the path that leads all around the fortress, he does not perceive a hole or fissure in the ramparts even big enough to allow a cat to slip through. So he comes to the conclusion, whatever grosser living things are to enter or leave this city, they will all have to do so just by this gate. In the same way, Lord, I have come to know the lawfulness of the Dharma. For, Lord, all the blessed ones, arhats, fully enlightened ones of the past, had abandoned the five hindrances, 
the mental defilements that weaken wisdom, had well established their minds in the four foundations of mindfulness, had duly cultivated the seven factors of enlightenment, and were fully enlightened in unsurpassed supreme enlightenment. And Lord, all the blessed ones, arhats, fully enlightened ones of the future, will fully abandon the five hindrances, the mental defilements that weaken wisdom, will well establish their minds in the four foundations of mindfulness, will duly cultivate the seven factors of enlightenment, and will be fully enlightened in unsurpassed supreme enlightenment. And the Blessed One too, Lord, being at present the Arhat, the fully enlightened one, has abandoned the five hindrances, the mental defilements that weaken wisdom, has well established his mind in the four foundations of mindfulness, has duly cultivated the seven factors of enlightenment, and is fully enlightened in unsurpassed supreme enlightenment. And also in Nalanda, in the mango grove of Pavarika, the Blessed One often gave counsel to the bhikkhus thus, Such and such is virtue, such and such is concentration, and such and such is wisdom. Great becomes the fruit, great is the gain of concentration, when it is fully developed by virtuous conduct. Great becomes the fruit, great is the gain of wisdom, when it is fully developed by concentration. Utterly freed from the taints of lust, becoming, and ignorance, is the mind that is fully developed in wisdom. When the Blessed One had stayed at Nalanda as long as he pleased, he addressed the Venerable Ananda thus, Come, Ananda, let us go to Pataligama. Ananda replied, So be it, Lord. And the Blessed One took up his abode at Pataligama together with a large community of bhikkhus. Then the devotees of Pataligama came to know, The Blessed One, they say, has arrived at Pataligama. And they approached the Blessed One, respectfully greeting him, sat down at one side, and addressed him thus, May the Blessed One, Lord, kindly visit our council hall. And the Blessed One consented by his silence. Knowing the Blessed One's consent, the devotees of Pataligama rose from their seats, respectfully saluted him, and keeping their right sides toward him, departed for the council hall. Then they prepared the council hall by covering the floor all over, arranging seats and water, and setting out an oil lamp. Having done this, they returned to the Blessed One, respectfully greeted him, and standing at one side, announced, Lord, the council hall is ready. With the floor covered all over, seats and water prepared, and an oil lamp has been set out. Let the Blessed One come, Lord, at his convenience. And the Blessed One got ready, and taking his bowl and robe, went to the council hall together with the company of bhikkhus. After rinsing his feet, the Blessed One entered the council hall and took his seat close to the middle pillar, facing east. The community of bhikkhus, after rinsing their feet, also entered the council and took their seats near the western wall, facing east, so that the Blessed One was before them. And the devotees of Pataligama, after rinsing their feet and entering the council hall, sat down near the eastern wall, facing west, so that the Blessed One was in front of them. Thereupon, the Blessed One addressed the devotees of Pataligama thus, The immoral man, householders, by falling away from virtue, encounters five perils, great loss of wealth through heedlessness, an evil reputation, a timid and troubled demeanor in every society, be it that of nobles, brahmins, householders, or ascetics, death and bewilderment, and, at the breaking up of the body after death, rebirth in a realm of misery, in an unhappy state, in the netherworld, in hell. Five blessings, householders, accrue to the righteous man through his practice of virtue. Great increase of wealth through his diligence. A favorable reputation. A confident deportment, without timidity, in every society, be it that of nobles, brahmins, householders, or ascetics. A serene death. And at the breaking up of the body after death, rebirth in a happy state, in a heavenly world. And the Blessed One spent much of the night instructing the devotees of Pataligama in the Dharma, rousing, edifying, and gladdening them. 
after which he dismissed them, saying, The night is far advanced, householders. You may go at your convenience. They replied, So be it, Lord. And the devotees of Patalegama rose from their seats, respectfully saluted the Blessed One, and keeping their right sides toward him, departed. And the Blessed One, soon after their departure, retired into privacy. At that time, Sunida and Vasakara, the chief ministers of Magadha, were building a fortress at Patalegama in defense against the Vajis, and deities in large numbers, counted in thousands, had taken possession of sites at Patalegama. In the region where deities of great power prevailed, officials of great power were bent on constructing edifices, and where deities of medium power and lesser power prevailed, officials of medium and lesser power were bent on constructing edifices. And the Blessed One saw with the heavenly eye, pure and transcending the faculty of men, the deities, counted in thousands, where they had taken possession of sites in Patalegama. And rising before the night was spent, towards dawn, the Blessed One addressed the Venerable Ananda thus, Who is it, Ananda, that is erecting a city at Patalegama? Ananda replied, Sunita and Vasakara, Lord, the chief ministers of Magadha, are building a fortress at Patalegama in defense against the Vajis. It is, Ananda, as if Sunita and Vasakara had taken counsel with the gods of the thirty-three. For I beheld, Ananda, with the heavenly eye, pure and transcending the faculty of men, a large number of deities, counted in thousands, that have taken possession of sites at Patalegama. In the region where deities of great power prevail, officials of great power are bent on constructing edifices. And where deities of medium and lesser power prevail, officials of medium and lesser power are bent on constructing edifices. Truly, Ananda, as far as the Aryan race extends and trade routes spread, this will be the foremost city, Pataliputta, a trade center. But Pataliputta, Ananda, will be assailed by three perils, fire, water, and ascension. Then Sunita and Vasakara went to the Blessed One, and after courteous greeting to the Blessed One and exchanging many pleasant words, they stood at one side and addressed him thus, May the Venerable Gotama please accept our invitation for tomorrow's meal, together with the community of bhikkhus, and the Blessed One consented by his silence. Knowing the Blessed One's consent, Sunita and Vasakara departed for their own abodes, where they had choice food, hard and soft, prepared. And when it was time, they announced to the Blessed One, It is time, Venerable Gotama, the meal is ready. Thereupon, the Blessed One got ready in the forenoon, and taking the bowl and robe, he went together with the community of bhikkhus to the abode of Sunita and Vasakara, where he took the seat prepared for him. And Sunita and Vasakara themselves attended on the community of bhikkhus headed by the Buddha, and served them with choice food, hard and soft. When the Blessed One had finished his meal and had removed his hand from the bowl, they took low seats and sat down at one side. And the Blessed One thanked them with these stanzas, Wherever he may dwell, the prudent man, ministers to the caste and virtuous, and having to these worthy ones made gifts, he shares his merits with the local devas. And so revered, they honor him in turn, are gracious to him even as a mother is towards her own, her only son. And he who thus enjoys the devas' grace, and is by them beloved, good fortune sees. After this, the Blessed One rose from his seat and departed. Then Sunita and Vasakara followed behind the Blessed One step by step, saying, through whichever gate the recluse Gotama will depart today, that we will name the Gotama Gate, and the ford by which he will cross the river Ganges shall be named the Gotama Ford, and so it came to pass where the gate was concerned. But when the Blessed One came to the river Ganges, it was full to the brim, so that crows could drink from it. And some people went in search of a boat or a float, 
while others tied up a raft, because they desired to get across. But the Blessed One, as quickly as a strong man might stretch out his bent arm, or draw in his outstretched arm, vanished from this side of the river Ganges, and came to stand on the yonder side. And the Blessed One saw the people who desired to cross searching for a boat or float, while others were binding rafts. And then the Blessed One, seeing them thus, gave forth the solemn utterance, They who have bridged the ocean vast, leaving the lowlands far behind, while others still their frail rafts bind, are saved by wisdom unsurpassed. Now the Blessed One spoke to the Venerable Ananda, saying, Come, Ananda, let us go to Kotigama. So be it, Lord, Ananda replied. And the Blessed One took up his abode at Kotigama together with a large community of bhikkhus. And the Blessed One addressed the bhikkhus, saying, Bhikkhus, it is through not realizing, through not penetrating the Four Noble Truths, that this long course of birth and death has been passed through and undergone by me as well as by you. What are these four? They are the noble truth of suffering, the noble truth of the origin of suffering, the noble truth of the cessation of suffering, and the noble truth of the way to the cessation of suffering. But now, bhikkhus, that these have been realized and penetrated, cut off is the craving for existence, destroyed is that which leads to renewed becoming, and there is no fresh becoming. Thus it was said by the Blessed One, and the happy one, the master, further said, Through not seeing the Four Noble Truths, long was the weary path from birth to birth. When these are known, removed is rebirth's cause, the root of sorrow plucked, then ends rebirth. And also at Kotigama, the Blessed One often gave counsel to the bhikkhus thus, Such and such is virtue, such and such is concentration, and such and such is wisdom. Great becomes the fruit, great is the gain of concentration when it is fully developed by virtuous conduct. Great becomes the fruit, great is the gain of wisdom when it is fully developed by concentration, utterly freed from the taints of lust, becoming, and ignorance, is the mind that is fully developed in wisdom. When the Blessed One had stayed at Kotigama as long as he pleased, he spoke to the Venerable Ananda, saying, Come on, Ananda, let us go to Nadika. So be it, Lord, replied Ananda, and the Blessed One took up his abode in Nadika together with a large community of bhikkhus, staying in the brick house. Then the Venerable Ananda approached the Blessed One, and, after greeting him respectfully, sat down at one side. And he said to the Blessed One, Here in Nadika, Lord, there have passed away the bhikkhu Salha and the bhikkhu Ninanda. Likewise there have passed away the layman Sudatta and the laywoman Sujata. Likewise the layman Kakuda, Kalinga, Nikata. Katasaba, Tutta, Santutta, Bada, and Subada. What is their destiny, Lord? What is their future state? The Bhikkhu Sala, Ananda, through the destruction of the taints in this very lifetime, has attained to the taint-free deliverance of mind and deliverance through wisdom, having directly known and realized it by himself. The Bhikkhu Nanda, Ananda, through the destruction of the five lower fetters that bind beings to the world of the senses, has arisen spontaneously among the Sudavasa deities, and will come to the final cessation in that very place, not liable to return from that world. The layman Sudatta, Ananda, through the destruction of the three fetters, self-belief, doubt, and faith in the efficacy of rituals and observances, and the lessening of lust, hatred, and delusion, has become a once-returner and is bound to make an end of suffering after having returned but once more in this world. The laywoman Sujata, Ananda, through the destruction of the three fetters, has become a stream-enterer and is safe from falling into the states of misery, assured and bound for enlightenment. The layman Kakuda, Ananda, through the destruction of the five lower fetters that bind beings to the world of the senses, 
has arisen spontaneously among the Sudavasa deities and will come to final cessation in that very place, not liable to return from that world. So it is with Kalinga, Nikata, Katisaba, Tuta, Santuta, Bada, and Subada, and with more than 50 laymen in Nadika. More than 90 laymen who have passed away in Nadika, Ananda, through the destruction of the three fetters and the lessening of lust, hatred, and delusion, have become once-returners and are bound to make an end of suffering after having returned but once more in this world. More than 500 laymen who have passed away in Nadika, Ananda, through the complete destruction of the three fetters, have become stream-enterers and are safe from falling into the states of misery, assured, and bound for enlightenment. But truly, Ananda, it is nothing strange that human beings should die. But if each time it happens you should come to the Tathagata and ask about them in this manner, indeed it would be troublesome to him. Therefore, Ananda, I will give you the teaching called the Mirror of the Dharma, possessing which the noble disciple, should he so desire, can declare of himself, There is no more rebirth for me in hell, nor as an animal or ghost, nor in any realm of woe. A stream-enterer am I, safe from falling into states of misery, assured am I, and bound for enlightenment. And what, Ananda, is the teaching called the Mirror of the Dharma, possessing which the noble disciple may thus declare of himself? In this case, Ananda, the noble disciple possesses unwavering faith in the Buddha thus, The Blessed One is an Arhat, the fully enlightened one, perfect in knowledge and conduct, the happy one, the knower of the world, the paramount trainer of beings, the teacher of gods and men, the enlightened one, the blessed one. He possesses unwavering faith in the Dharma thus. Well propounded by the blessed one is the Dharma, evident, timeless, inviting investigation, leading to emancipation, to be comprehended by the wise, each for himself. He possesses unwavering faith in the blessed one's order of disciples thus. Well-faring is the blessed one's order of disciples, righteously, wisely, and dutifully, that is to say, the four pairs of men, the eight classes of persons. The Blessed One's order of disciples is worthy of honor, of hospitality, of offerings, of veneration, the supreme field for meritorious deeds in the world. And he possesses virtues that are dear to the noble ones, complete and perfect, spotless and pure, which are liberating, praised by the wise, uninfluenced by worldly concerns, and favorable to concentration of mind. This, Ananda, is the teaching called the Mirror of the Dharma, whereby the noble disciple may thus know of himself, There is no more rebirth for me in hell, nor as an animal or ghost, nor in any realm of woe. A stream-enterer am I, safe from falling into the states of misery, assured am I, and bound for enlightenment. And also in Nadika, in the brick house, the Blessed One often gave counsel to the bhikkhus thus, Such and such is virtue, such and such is concentration, and such and such is wisdom. Great becomes the fruit, great is the gain of concentration when it is fully developed by virtuous conduct. Great becomes the fruit, great is the gain of wisdom when it is fully developed by concentration. Utterly freed from the taints of lust, becoming in ignorance, is the mind that is fully developed in wisdom. When the Blessed One had stayed in Nadika as long as he pleased, he spoke to the Venerable Ananda, saying, Come, Ananda, let us go to Vasali. So be it, Lord, Ananda replied. And the Blessed One took up his abode in Vasali, together with a large community of bhikkhus, and stayed in Ambapali's grove. Then the Blessed One addressed the bhikkhus, saying, Mindful should you dwell, bhikkhus, clearly comprehending. Thus I exhort you. And now, bhikkhus, is a bhikkhu mindful, when he dwells contemplating the body in the body, earnestly, clearly comprehending, and mindfully, after having overcome desire and sorrow in regard to the world, 
and when he dwells contemplating feelings in feelings, the mind in the mind, and mental objects in mental objects, earnestly clearly comprehending, and mindfully, after having overcome desire and sorrow in regard to the world, then is he said to be mindful. And how, bhikkhus, does a bhikkhu have clear comprehension, when he remains fully aware of his coming and going, his looking forward and his looking away, his bending and stretching, his wearing of his robe and carrying of his bowl, his eating and drinking, masticating and savoring, his defecation and urinating, his walking, standing, sitting, lying down, going to sleep or keeping awake, his speaking or being silent, then he is said to have clear comprehension. Mindful should you dwell, bhikkhus, clearly comprehending, thus I exhort you. Then Ambapali, the courtesan, came to know. The blessed one, they say, has arrived at Vasali and is now staying in my mango grove. And she ordered a large number of magnificent carriages to be made ready, mounted one of them herself, and accompanied by the rest, drove out from Vasali towards her park. She went by carriage as far as the carriage could go, then alighted, and approaching the blessed one on foot, she respectfully greeted him and sat down at one side. And the blessed one instructed Ambapali, the courtesan, in the Dharma, and roused, edified, and gladdened her. Thereafter, Ambapali the courtesan spoke to the Blessed One, saying, May the Blessed One, O Lord, please accept my invitation for tomorrow's meal, together with the community of bhikkhus. And by his silence, the Blessed One consented. Sure then of the Blessed One's consent, Ambapali the courtesan rose from her seat, respectfully saluted him, and keeping her right side towards him, took her departure. Then Lachavi of Vasali came to know, the Blessed One, they say, has arrived at Vasali, and is now staying in Ambapali's grove. And they ordered a large number of magnificent carriages to be ready, each mounted one, and, accompanied by the rest, drove out from Vasali. Now, of these Lachavis, some were in blue, with clothing and ornaments all of blue, while others were in yellow, red, and white. And it so happened that Ambapali the courtesan drove up against the young Lachavis, axle by axle, wheel by wheel, and yoke by yoke. Thereupon the Lachavis exclaimed, Why do you drive up against us in this fashion, Ambapali? Thus it is indeed, my princes, and not otherwise. For the Blessed One is invited by me for tomorrow's meal, together with the community of bhikkhus, replied Ambapali. Give up the meal, Ambapali, for a hundred thousand, replied the Lachavis. But she replied, Even if you were to give me Vasali, sirs, together with its tributary lands, I would not give up a meal of such importance. Then the Lachavis snapped their fingers in annoyance. See, friends, we are defeated by this mango lass. We are utterly outdone by this mango lass. But they continued on their way to Ambapali's grove. And the Blessed One beheld the Lachavis from afar as they drove up. Then he spoke to the bhikkhus, saying, Those of you bhikkhus who have not yet seen the thirty-three gods may behold the assembly of the Lachavis, and may gaze on them, for they are comparable to the assembly of the thirty-three gods. Then the Lachavis drove their carriages as far as their carriages would go, then alighted, and approaching the Blessed One on foot, they respectfully greeted him and sat down at one side. The Blessed One instructed the Lachavis in the Dharma, and roused, edified, and gladdened them. Thereafter the Lachavis spoke to the Blessed One, saying, May the Blessed One, O Lord, please accept our invitation for tomorrow's meal, together with the community of bhikkhus. The invitation for tomorrow's meal, Lachavis, has been accepted by me from Ambapali the courtesan, the Blessed One replied. Then the Lachavis snapped their fingers in annoyance. See, friends, we are defeated by this mango lass. We are utterly outdone by this mango lass. And then the Lachavis, approving of the Blessed One's words and delighted with them, 
rose from their seats, respectfully saluted him, and keeping their right sides towards him, took their departure. Then, after the night had passed, Ambapali the courtesan had choice food, hard and soft, prepared in her park, and announced it to the Blessed One. It is time, O Lord, the meal is ready. Thereupon, the Blessed One got ready in the forenoon, and taking bowl and robe, he went together with the community of bhikkhus to Ambapali's dwelling, and there he took the seat prepared for him, and Ambapali herself attended on the community of bhikkhus headed by the Buddha, and served them with choice food, hard and soft. And when the Blessed One had finished his meal and had removed his hand from his bowl, Ambapali the courtesan took a low seat, and placing herself at one side, spoke to the Blessed One, saying, This park, O Lord, I offer to the community of bhikkhus headed by the Buddha. And the Blessed One accepted the park. He then instructed Ambapali in the Dharma, and having roused, edified, and gladdened her, he rose from his seat and departed. And also at Vasali, in Ambapali's grove, the Blessed One often gave counsel to the bhikkhus thus, such and such is virtue, such and such is concentration, and such and such is wisdom. Great becomes the fruit, great is the gain of concentration, when it is fully developed by virtuous conduct. Great becomes the fruit, great is the gain of wisdom, when it is fully developed by concentration, utterly freed from the taints of lust, becoming, and ignorance, is the mind that is fully developed in wisdom. When the Blessed One had stayed in Ambapali's grove as long as he pleased, he spoke to the Venerable Ananda thus, saying, Come, Ananda, let us go to the village of Baluva. So be it, Lord, replied Ananda, and the Blessed One took up his abode in the village of Baluva together with the large community of bhikkhus. At that time, the Blessed One spoke to the bhikkhus, saying, Go now, bhikkhus, and seek shelter anywhere in the neighborhood of Vasali, where you are welcome, among acquaintances and friends, and there spend the rainy season. As for me, I shall spend the rainy season in this very place, in the village of Baluva. So be it, O Lord, the bhikkhus said. But when the Blessed One had entered upon the rainy season, there arose in him a severe illness, and sharp and deadly pains came upon him, and the Blessed One endured them mindfully, clearly comprehending and unperturbed. Then it occurred to the Blessed One, It would not be fitting if I came to my final passing away without addressing those who attended on me, without taking leave of the community of bhikkhus. Then let me suppress this illness by strength of will, resolve to maintain the life process, and live on. And the Blessed One suppressed the illness by strength of will, resolved to maintain the life process, and lived on. So it came about that the Blessed One's illness was allayed. And the Blessed One recovered from that illness, and soon after his recovery, he came out from his dwelling place and sat down in the shade of the building, on a seat prepared for him. Then the Venerable Ananda approached the Blessed One, respectfully greeted him, and sitting down at one side, he spoke to the Blessed One, saying, Fortunate it is for me, O Lord, to see the Blessed One at ease again. Fortunate it is for me, O Lord, to see the Blessed One recovered. For truly, Lord, when I saw the Blessed One's sickness, it was as though my own body became weak as a creeper. Everything around became dim to me, and my senses failed me. Yet, Lord, I still had some little comfort in the thought that the Blessed One would not come to his final passing away until he had given some last instructions respecting the community of bhikkhus. Thus spoke the Venerable Ananda, but the Blessed One answered him, saying, What more does the community of bhikkhus expect from me, Ananda? I have set forth the Dharma without making any distinction of esoteric and exoteric doctrine. There is nothing, Ananda, with regard to the teachings that the Tathagata holds to the last with the closed fist of a teacher who keeps things back. Whosoever may think that it is he who should lead the community of bhikkhus, or that the community depends on him, 
It is such a one that would have to give last instructions respecting them. But Ananda, the Tathagata has no such idea as that it is he who should lead the community of bhikkhus, or that the community depends on him. So what instructions should he have to give respecting the community of bhikkhus? Now I am frail, Ananda, old, aged, far gone in years. This is my eightieth year, and my life is spent. Even as an old cart, Ananda, is held together with much difficulty, so the body of the Tathagata is kept going only with supports. It is, Ananda, only when the Tathagata, disregarding external objects with the cessation of certain feelings, attains to and abides in the signless concentration of mind, that his body is more comfortable. Therefore, Ananda, be islands unto yourselves, refuges unto yourselves, seeking no external refuge, with the Dharma as your island, the Dharma as your refuge, seeking no other refuge. And how, Ananda, is a bhikkhu an island unto himself, a refuge unto himself, seeking no external refuge, with the Dharma as his island, the Dharma as his refuge, seeking no other refuge? When he dwells contemplating the body in the body, earnestly, clearly, comprehending, and mindfully, after having overcome desire and sorrow in regard to the world, when he dwells contemplating feelings in feelings, the mind in the mind, and mental objects in mental objects, earnestly, clearly comprehending, and mindfully, after having overcome desire and sorrow in regard to the world, then truly he is an island unto himself, a refuge unto himself, seeking no external refuge, having the Dharma as his island, the Dharma as his refuge, seeking no other refuge. Those bhikkhus of mine, Ananda, who now or after I am gone, abide as an island unto themselves, as a refuge unto themselves, seeking no other refuge, having the Dharma as their island and refuge, seeking no other refuge, it is they who will become the highest if they have the desire to learn. So that was part one of the Mahaparinibbana Sutta, including chapters one and two. So what did you think? That was interesting. I get the feeling that that was a whole lot of setup that's going to pay off in the next step. This seems like it was setting things up for things to be knocked down later in the sutta. That's absolutely the case. This one is a lot longer in the Pali canon than it is in the Mahayana canon, the Taisho canon. And so we will see a lot more detailed storytelling about the frame narrative dealing with the conflict with the Vajis. And we will also see a lot more detailed interactions between the Buddha and the community of bhikkhus and bhikkhunis, as well as between him and Ananda. Yeah, I'm actually looking forward to learning more about Ananda here. He's popped up in a couple of other spots in the suttas that have left him an interesting and somewhat mysterious character. Like he's so my understanding is he's in, mainly in charge of chronicling things, right? Like that's correct. So yet neither he nor the disciples around him ever wrote anything down. So my understanding from that would be that Ananda memorized all of those sutras. Yes, he memorizes them and he is leading in recitation and in the, the sort of chanting and repetitive stuff to make the community of disciples remember things. And he's often off away from the Buddha doing those duties during some other sutras. And because he's so enlightened, while he might be reciting in tandem with a group of disciples one sutta, he's 
also hearing another sutta from the Buddha in a different place. So he's got some very strong psychic powers uh, when it comes to memorizing everything and repeating everything exactly as he heard it. And in fact, that'll actually come up as a plot point in part two. It'll come up as a plot point that he remembers things that the Buddha says verbatim and repeats them back to him, trying to gain a better understanding, trying to push the story forward, but also trying to simply just understand why the death of the Buddha is oncoming. Okay, so a couple of questions that came up for me as I was reading this. So first of all, we're moving to a lot of different towns and cities. Like at one point, we take a detour to, I'm going to try this, Ambalatika? Ambalatika? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then a few paragraphs later, we're in Nalanda. And it doesn't seem like anything major happened in Ambalatika. So why are we talking about it? Like, why are we going from town to town like this and just... It's. It, I don't see what the purpose of the town hopping is right now. That's a good question. This sutta is a, it's a very unique picture of the Buddha's life and Ananda's life following him around and chronicling everything. It's so much more personal and so much more... Uh, how, you would, how would you even say it? It's so much more close and intimate and personal than a lot of the other stories. It seems like a lot of the other sutta stories are told from a more distanced perspective. It seems like the eyes of the narrator are farther away from the Buddha's personal life and experiences. But this one is very, very close. It's almost like we're looking over his shoulder. And near the end of his life, that's exactly what he was doing. He was going around all these different towns and preaching the Dharma to them. That serves two purposes. One, it shows the community what a realized Buddha does, right? Goes out there and preaches. Yeah. The background concern of this entire story is what are we going to do whenever the Buddha dies? We have reason to believe, obviously, that this sutta was composed and added onto and edited and worked on centuries after the Buddha died, after Ananda allegedly died, after the second generation of disciples died, right? This was an oral tradition that kept being handed down generation after generation until someone wrote it down around the turn of the millennium. And that being the case, it is answering the question, which is at the center of a lot of Mahayana doctrine that we will see in the future, which is what do we do whenever the Buddha dies? Does the Dharma die with him? How can we learn? How can we achieve enlightenment? How can we get there without the Buddha to guide us, without him to teach us and help us understand. And so the narrative of him going from town to town and teaching this or that to whoever is saying to that community, answering that question, okay, well, what you do is you go from town to town and you tell them such and such is dignity, such and such is wisdom, such and such is concentration. And the reason why I use that language is because that's actually the language that the sutra uses. It's not concerned with what he is teaching, necessarily. You'll see it's actually rendered as, and the Buddha went to the community of bhikkhus in Ambapali and said, such and such is wisdom, such and such is concentration. And it's because it's not trying to tell them what he said to them, as much as it's trying to tell them that he went and said those things to them. Yeah, I guess we could kind of assume that's 
there's a lot of steps not recorded in the Suto then. Like when he goes to Nalanda, it's leaving out all of it, it or at least truncating all of the teaching he does while he's there, I guess. Exactly. Because of that, the other function of showing him going to these different towns, but not really offering a lot of detail about what he does there, the other function of that is to highlight the things that it does give detail about. So the entire discussion in part one about conditions for a nation's welfare, seven good qualities, seven factors of enlightenment, seven perceptions, all of those stand a lot more vibrantly and a lot more boldly against the background of such and such is concentration, such and such is attainment, right? Because he's trying to tell them, whenever I'm gone, these are the things that you have to focus on, you have to worry about, you have to concern your practice with and concern your preaching with and concern everything with. Okay, makes sense. So another character that shows up a little bit in this... In this text, it's Sariputta, but that's Shariputra, I would guess. Yes. We've seen him before. Mm-hmm. And in this, he makes a statement that the Buddha is the wisest and best and most enlightened. And then the Buddha says, do you know the other ones? Are you sure about that? Yeah. And kind of slaps Shariputra down again as we've seen him before, and then it kind of just moves on. So what's going on there? Like That seemed like a non-sequitur. Yeah, that's a good question, too. So the reason why they've included that is Shariputra, I should mention first that Shariputra in this canon is a lot more well-respected. He does get slapped down sometimes, as we've seen with this particular scene, but ultimately... It isn't until we get to the Mahayana Taisho canon that Shariputra really gets made a fool of constantly. In this case, what the Buddha is trying to caution Shariputra against saying and doing and believing and teaching and telling others in particular is saying that he is a -a one-of-a-kind character. So the Buddha is enlightened, and he knows that he's going to pass away at some point. And he knows that what he did, attaining enlightenment under the Bodhi tree, he knows that what he did is attainable. He knows that it's something that others can do. He knows that because he was unenlightened and then he became enlightened. And so for Shariputra to say that there is no equal, there is no other possible character in the whole universe who could ever do something like that, that's an incorrect view, at least if you want to continue to have this religion, philosophy, whatever you want to call early Buddhism, to continue. If you want to have that, and you want that to live on past just the lifetime of this one man, you can't say that this one man is the only one who could ever figure it all out, and we're all screwed afterwards. And so Shariputra was saying, you're the best ever, you're the most enlightened ever, no one ever compares, it's you know one of a kind. And the Buddha says, well, hold on, I've preached about other Buddhas and other quarters. I've preached about Buddhas of past, present, and future. I've preached about Buddhas to come, Buddhas that have passed. I've preached about how other Buddhas will come in the future. And, you know, do you know for a fact that those ones are less enlightened than I am? And Shariputra's like, well, no, I don't actually. 
And the Buddha's like, that's right, you don't. And so you can't say that I'm one of a kind because I've spent all this time trying to tell you that I'm not. I mean, Maitreya is uh, already in the chamber ready to go for the next one, apparently. Like, eventually. So, yeah, okay. It makes sense. Like, the, the sentiment being shared there makes sense. And that is a spot where Shariputra probably needed to step down a bit. But also, why is it here? And why is... It seems so truncated compared to the setup going on into other things, whereas this comes out suddenly, abruptly, and ends just as abruptly. What's like, is what's going on there? That's also a good question, yeah. So if we look at what comes before and after it, it does seem like it's out of place on initial glance, right? So right before it, as I understand it, we have the six conditions to be remembered. Right attend on each other with loving kindness and deed, word, and thought, both openly and private, respect due offerings, and do not make use of them without sharing them with the members of the community. On and on they go, right? Just giving instructions for how to be a good itinerant monk. And then there's Shariputra's lion's roar, as they call it. And then after that, the Buddha goes somewhere else and starts preaching about the Four Noble Truths. He gives the first sermon again. And my personal opinion is that Shariputra's lion's roar is setting up what happens when Ananda asks about the four specific attainments. Ananda asks what happens when these specific people have died. And the Buddha answers, actually. And we'll see this is a difference between this text and the Mahayana text, the Mahaparinirvana Sutra, as opposed to the Mahaparinibbana Sutta. The Mahaparinirvana Sutra is actually a lot shorter and includes much more preaching about Buddha nature and such. And we'll do that one in a separate episode. But in that one, I believe that whenever Ananda asks what happened to these people, the Buddha shrugs him off and says, like, well, you're, not, you're not worrying about the right thing. You're not thinking about the right thing or asking the right question. Similarly to how in the past, when asked questions about apocalypse or about Genesis, right, the beginning of the universe or the end of it, the Buddha's right. like, I, I'm not here to answer that. I'm not here to really discuss that. In this case, the Buddha does answer specifically what happened to all of these people. And then afterwards, he says, even though all of that is true, here's what you should actually focus on. Here's what you should actually be worried about. Instead of what happens to each and every person when they die, you should be thinking about this mirror of the Dharma teaching, where you take refuge in the three jewels, right? And you advise the sangha and you have clear mindfulness and comprehension you don't worry so much right you don't worry about the attainments or lack thereof and the reason you don't do that is because you're thinking of it in that sense as sort of like an instrumental or how might you say like a technical way overly technical way so that you can say to yourself okay this person did x and got y this person did a and got b maybe if i do c i will get d right? You're trying to replicate something so that you can do well, or maybe even do better than those who have come and gone. And the Buddha says, I've taught about the relationship between X and Y, A and B, C and D, but you're just worried about what happens when you die. You need to be worried about A, B, C, D, X, Y, you know what I mean? You need to be worried about the fundamentals of the teaching. Yeah, outside of this sutta, I've seen multiple accounts of the Buddha 
not answering questions of that nature, like not answering questions about the afterlife or the beginning of the universe or the end. So it's good to see that actually in action. Although, again, he actually does answer in this one. And that's an interesting difference between the two versions of this sutta. Like, that's actually a pretty big detail to change. Right. Yeah, the, the other one is a lot more truncated and is and some of the things that the Buddha preaches whenever he goes to these different places is different. We'll have to do that one soon just to compare and contrast. Absolutely. So another term that comes up a few times of this that I'm interested in learning more about, gods of the 33 or 33 gods, what's going on here? So the 33 gods or the Tridasha are this pantheon of Hindu deities of Vedic origin. And so these 33 gods are usually present whenever the Buddha is preaching things, whenever he's traveling, whenever he's, you know, doing what he does with the community. This is a very interesting category of deities and a very interesting category religiously because, as we've talked about before, once the six realms or the ten realms doctrine gets a lot more concrete in the Buddhist text, we see that these Hindu gods start to take the place of the devas or the asuras, right? And they have a very clear demarcated spot in the doctrine of reincarnation, of dependent origination, of karma, and then everything makes a lot of sense. But in this certain part of Buddhist history, that doctrine is not really hammered out yet. And that being the case, these gods are usually present and usually react to and interact with the Buddha's teachings. But it's not clear, you know, how you become one. It's not clear what position they hold in the cosmology. And these ones are in that category. They're just sort of pulled over and inherited without really finding a place for them in the cosmology because Buddhist cosmology is developing at this point. And so we've got eight deities of material elements, including gods of sky, earth, wind, fire, stars, water, sun, and moon. We've got personified deities, Vishnu, Indra, and other ones. And then we have these other gods, which are gods of abstractions, bliss, knowledge, thought, breath, life. We have these names of Shiva, revealing aspect, concealing aspect, destroying aspect. We have a god that personifies self, and then we also have two solar deities. That ends up adding up to 33. So these gods of the 33, they're also, they're not only are they present, but they're also judges, you might say, of the validity of the idea of the Buddha's teaching that he's providing at that moment. So in addition to like reacting and interacting, they also offer credibility with their reactions. And they're included, since this is not a fully developed cosmology yet, at least not a developed Mahayana cosmology, they are offering credibility to a reader who lives in a culture that has both Buddhism and early Hinduism, Brahmanism, as competing ideologies. And therefore, by including them, the Buddha is saying that the gods of the 33 approve, they like it, they react well. And if your gods like this teaching, then it would help for you to adopt it yourself. Right. This would be like if a small religion in ancient Greece used the Greek gods as 
part of their story, I guess. Exactly. Okay. And it makes sense that they would be there because if they're here judging every, if their job is to judge things like this, then of course they're going to come to this guy speaking his teaching because he's teaching the enlightened way. So of getting there, putting them where they are is another way of saying, hey, this guy's legit. Exactly. Last detail I wanted to ask about, it makes a point that everybody is showing their right side to the Buddha. I'm assuming that's in, as opposition to their left side. So uh, what's going on there? Yeah, that's a good question. That's just typical, good, respectful interaction with the Buddha. We see that in all of these different texts pretty universally, actually. We see that the left side is not shown to the Buddha. And what's interesting about that is that that changes in East Asia for a couple of different reasons, but we'll get there in a second. In this regard, it's a matter of respect to walk around something a few times, to circumnavigate something a few times with your right side shown to it. I think that we've seen in other texts these cases where someone will walk around a temple or will walk around a stupa or something They'll walk around it three times with their right side facing, and then they'll sit down and something will happen. This is something that happens in the opening chapters of the Lotus Sutra, I believe, and it also happens in some other later texts, which we'll get to later. What's fascinating is that the side that is representative of respect changes in later East Asian culture. In China, Korea, and Japan, the more respectful side is actually the left side. In fact, you'll see a lot of East Asian garb and dressing, you'll see if it's a robe or something, then the left side of the robe goes over the top of the right side. And I've heard this explained to me before in saying that the left side is the universal side and the right side is the selfish side. And that whenever you die, you might be buried with the right side of the robe over the left side of the robe. And I never really looked more deeply into it than that. So I don't know how valid that is to say. But I do know that this is just a matter of like the typical traditional salutation that you give the Buddha. You come up and you walk around him with your right side facing him and you greet him in verse and then you sit down and ask your question or have whatever conversation you want to have with him. Okay, so basically it's just etiquette in this case. Exactly. Okay. Those are the details that I wanted to scratch on. Um, what Did uh, I miss anything you wanted to talk about? Yeah, so I just wanted to call some attention to the conditions for the welfare of the Sangha after the Buddha dies. It should be noted that this is actually both a political treatise, a political ideology, and also a religious community ideology, an ecumenical ideology. So those conditions are mentioned in part one, and they are frequent gatherings with well-attended meetings, peaceful assembly and dispersing, concord in attending to affairs, neither enacting new decrees nor abolishing existing ones, but proceeding in accordance with ancient tradition and constitutions, respecting elders, refraining from treating women badly, showing respect and honor and esteem and veneration towards shrines, regardless of where they are, and making sure that they all have a good amount of offerings given to them, and then also protecting and guarding arhats so that wherever they are, they can come and go in peace. And these are things that the Buddha says in part one should apply also to the community of the Sangha. 
And this is where he pulls in the conflict with the Vajis, right? So the frame narrative here is that there is this king that wants to go and exact war on the Vajis. He wants to invade them. And Ananda tells the Buddha this. And the Buddha says, do the Vajis do all those things that I just mentioned? And Ananda says, yes, they do all of them. And in that case, the Buddha says, well, then they're going to live very long and prosper as a culture. And these are the things that the bhikkhus should also do, right? What's interesting about that, to me in particular, is that point about neither enacting new decrees nor abolishing existing ones. That is something that he says that both a nation should do and that the community of the Sangha should do. Now, before we start with the issue of the nation, the ecumenical structure does not apply to this. It does not adhere to this at all. History shows that this condition for the welfare of the community is not met. And the reason why I want to bring that up is because this is actually in conflict with the doctrine of skillful means of Upaya. It seems weird to hear a religion who has one of its founding points as impermanence to say, don't change things with reg in regard to the law. Like where, that seems weird to me, out of place even. Yeah, it seems very strange that there's not any sort of flexibility with this ideology. There's not any sort of openness to any sort of kind of like change in culture, in politics, in ecumenical discipline, in anything like that. And it's fascinating because also it just that condition's not met over time. There have been sutras that have been written in the Buddha's voice of varying levels of veracity that have come across in the last 2,500 years. In fact, there are people who write sutras in the Buddha's voice today. And so the idea of neither enacting new decrees nor abolishing existing ones, that's just not really something that Buddhists have adhered to. Mahayana tradition actually, I would argue, is strongly in favor of this kind of change, either enacting new decrees or abolishing existing ones. Because we see sutras that will say things like, the Four Noble Truths are all empty, or they will say the Buddha himself is empty, or they would say that the Dharma itself is empty. And they kind of draw back over a lot of these older doctrines using other doctrines that they choose to emphasize in one moment. And additionally, also, I should mention that in cases where Buddhism is a sort of governing ideology in nations historically, where this has been how a place governs itself, that condition's also not met. <laughs> there's respect given to ancient traditions, and there's obviously factionalism on as to whether this, this should be changed or that should be kept the same. But ultimately, there are a lot of new laws created over time. There's a lot of old laws that don't apply anymore that are done away with over time. And so that's just one of the more interesting points of these conditions for a nation's welfare and for a Sangha's welfare. It seems to me a impossible standard. And and again, even within Buddhism's own texts, uh, their own rules, it seems like more fundamental rules contradict that really badly. Yes. Such as, like you said, impermanence. Right. This is another point where we start to see the beginning of the ideological splits that occur between Mahayana and Theravada. Like I said, with Upaya, like you've said, with impermanence and also what we could say with emptiness. 
upaya, impermanence, emptiness, these things are a lot more strongly emphasized and prioritized over other things in the Mahayana. And they are important, but nonetheless, they're treated a little bit more strictly in the Theravada. And this is one of the early signs that something is coming where someone's going to disagree with that. And this is an early stance, you might say. It's difficult to parse out early non-sectarian Buddhism and say, whoever wrote this was going to run away and become a Theravada Buddhist. Whoever wrote this was going to be a Mahayana Buddhist. It's almost impossible even to say things like that. But we can see that this doctrine changes over time as Mahayana develops in East Asia. The next point I wanted to cover is dealing with when the Buddha becomes ill. Near the end of part two, the Buddha becomes deathly ill, and he allegedly endures the great pains that it causes him with mindfulness and concentration and wisdom and such. And he, being this powerful, enlightened being, is able to actually delay his illness. He can actually make himself stop being sick for a short amount of time, and he can resolve himself to keep living and to stop being sick and to give final instructions to the community. And this is foreshadowing, actually, because in part two, we will see that he's able to do this with his illness again and to do this with his own death. And the reason why I bring this up is because Mahayana Buddhists who have taken the doctrine of Upaya to its extreme conclusions, they've taken the logic of the doctrine and applied it very widely. They start to say things like, the Buddha's life was a skillful means. The Buddha arose in this world as a skillful means to teach people and to encourage people and to gladden and edify them to go and seek enlightenment. And this is some of the things that they use as evidence. The Buddha delaying his illness, the Buddha delaying his death, the Buddha deciding that not only does he know when he's going to get sick, when he's going to die, but he also knows what he has to do before all that happens. This is what they say is the reason that he is arising in this world as a skillful means, as a teaching tool. So all of that about being born a prince, leaving the palace, seeing an old person, a sick person, a dead person, seeing an ascetic, and then leaving it and going and teaching and reaching enlightenment under the Bodhi tree after 49 days and preaching until he turned 80, all of that, according to some Mahayana Buddhists later, is entirely like a skillful means just for encouraging the community. That being said, the Theravada community does acknowledge that enlightened people do have special powers. And those special powers are things like this, being able to keep yourself alive longer, being able to delay illness or to stop illness, being able to teleport, float. There's a whole range of special powers that you get when you become enlightened. Yeah, the this sutta itself just has as a nonchalant regular thing, oh, and he teleports across a river. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, being able to teleport across a big river is significantly a higher leap in believability than being able to meditate disease off for a little while. I've meditated to relieve pain and it worked so i could within the context of this sutta and of this story i can uh, totally believe the idea that he meditates this illness off 
it's in line with what the text is setting up is what this guy can do. So yeah, that's not the hard part at all. Yeah. And the reason why this comes up when it does is because the illness and his recovery from it causes Ananda and the bhikkhus to worry. This is the first sign that they are getting that the Buddha is going to die soon. And so near the end of part two, they ask him, what's going to happen whenever you die? What's going to happen in the future? What's going to happen to us? What's going to happen to Buddhism? They don't ask what's going to happen to Buddhism, but the implication is that they're asking what's going to happen to the doctrine and the community and to enlightenment as a concept. And he encourages them to be an island unto yourselves with the Dharma as your refuge, seeking not any other refuge. And so this is a very interesting point that we should hold on to going into part two, going into part three as well, where we do chapters three and four and five and six. This is a very interesting point of contention in the Theravada version, the Pali Canon version of this sutta as compared to the Mahayana Taisho Canon, Mahaparinirvana Sutra. This point has a whole different context and therefore a whole different implication in that text as compared to this one. And so just hang on to this nugget about being an island unto yourselves with the Dharma as your refuge. That's going to take a whole new meaning in the other text. So just keep that in mind. All right. Will do. Anything else? Nope. That covers it for me. All right. Then let's play our way out. That was our discussion of the Mahaparinibbana Sutta. Next time, we will be talking about part three and part four of this sutta, and we will see what all this setup is paying off in. So, hope to see you there. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. See you next time. My name is Nick Bright, scholar of East Asian religions and the voice of Hearer. And I'm Docs, editor, question asker, and voice of Hermit. And this has been Bright on Buddhism. Thank you for listening. If you like our podcast, or if you have a question you'd like us to discuss, we'd love to hear from you. Please consider leaving a comment or review, subscribing, or joining us on social media. Email us at bright.on.buddhism at gmail.com. Tweet us at brightbuddhism. And join us on our Discord server, The Hidden Sangha, link in description. As always, citations and resources for this episode can be found in the show notes. Thank you. See you next time. Thank you very much.